Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, how does the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board track violence, and have they been consistent through the years? Ontario's Education Minister announced the government has softened its stance on hiking class sizes to head off any labour disputes. And even though the Brexit deal is a consistent battle that's going on and on and on, some businesses over there are starting to act like it's already happened. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Safety in our schools is a pressing issue. And of course, uh, more so... And it probably should be each and every day, but of course, that's uh, I think highlighted obviously by the tragic death of uh, Devon Selby uh, at, at Churchill just a couple of weeks ago now. And uh, a report by CBC in- indicates, anyway, that analysis shows that history of inconsistencies in Hamilton schools and how they track violence and how they report uh, violent activities. Uh, there are some inconsistent numbers here, and I wanted to bring uh, Manny Figueroa on, who is the Director of Education with the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board, to, uh, to comment on these and uh, give us his side of the story on this. Uh, uh, first of all, Manny, thanks for joining us. I'm, gra- I'm glad you had some time for us today. Well, good morning, Bill. Thank you for having me. You and I have had discussions about school safety uh, long before the tragic death, of course, at Churchill, and it's, it, I know it's been a priority. It's been an ongoing problem. Uh, you've seen some of the numbers from the CBC analysis on this, uh, and they say there are some huge inconsistencies, even suggesting that uh, the Hamilton board may have one of the highest incidents of violence in, uh, of any board in Ontario. How do you respond to that? Uh, Bill, so yes, I've, of course, I've read the article. But I would say, um, you know, technically, you've seen the explanation around the numbers. We know there's a trend, Bill, in terms of we've been seeing that there has been an increase in terms of the complexity uh, of issues we've been dealing with over the last uh, five years. The, the anomaly of 2016-17-18, in terms of reporting, um, it can explain it, but I'm more concerned about how do we move forward with this? How do we look at the issue of people, of violence and bullying that we're seeing, not just uh, in schools, in our community? I've been reflecting upon, you know, the issue of Pride Week at Gage Park, some of the anti-Semitism we're seeing in our community, and the tragic incident at Sir Winston Churchill. So how do we come together as a community to look at this complex uh, issue of, of bullying or violence that, that we're seeing. Well, I want to talk about strategy in a couple of minutes, but I, I, you talked about the inconsistencies in what they're reporting and, and, and your uh, perspective on this as well, because these numbers are, are, are drastically uh, uh, wild. Uh, the ministry's most recent tally of violent incidents shows that your board submitted 13 reports in 2017-2018. However, an earlier version of that table obtained by the CBC study uh, shows the board initially reported 252 incidents. Uh, by far the highest number in the province. Why the discrepancy there, Manny? Yes, yeah, so if you look at the 252 in 2017-18, it's number of students who could have been impacted versus the number of incidents. So one incident could have resulted in five or six students uh, in, in the incident. And the previous years, the reporting was the incident, not the number of students involved in the incident. So, but, okay, if I can divide 13 into 252, that's still meaning there's a significant number of students uh, that are impacted by each and every incident. I mean, that, that's it's still a very troubling statistic. Yes, and we, we, so we clarified that when we, it, part of our input. And some of these incidents could have been uh, counted more, more than once, but it, it, is, and it is, and it is a concern for us as well. So speaking to my team, and, and you'll see as we go into the board Monday night, we are providing a report to the trustees to look at a panel to actually review what what we're seeing. We know the Board of Trustees over the last few years have had this discussion, 
and they've responded by putting different resources and supports in schools that we've spoken about in the past. Um, but it, it is a concern, and that's our explanation in terms of uh, why the data w- was skewed and how it was counted. The other point uh, that I, I found troubling as I went through this stuff too, Manny, uh, was you, there seems to be one story being told by the number of reports that, that the board files every year, uh, quite another story from a number of the teachers that were interviewed, and, uh, anonymously, uh, as you might have expected. Uh, but they say, look, at on the ground, this is a much different story. They, uh, they say that there are more incidents of it, more violence than, than are being reported. How do you respond to that? Yeah, so I've read the article too, Bill. I know it's, it's two, two educators who have come forward, and, and their, perspect, you know, their perspectives are... Are, are important, and, and we're willing to listen. I mean, the ministry outlined what the definition in terms of violent incidents, um, um, they've given clear criteria of, of what it is and what it isn't and what should be reported. So there's some discrepancy in terms of may, maybe how people interpret uh, what, what it should be. But regardless, we want to listen to everyone, and hence why um, we, part of our input from stakeholders will also be to listen to staff, uh, our union partners, and our students as we move forward because people on the ground are going to have the greatest um, perspective of what's happening. You have policies, and you've talked to us about the policies and, and in, the, in the past. Are the policies being carried out uh, to the full extent that they should be? Because there seems to be some inconsistency here from some of the parents and teachers that are responding to this saying, that's fine. Maybe I, I don't know if it's maybe some teachers that aren't reporting this. I, I don't know what's going on here, but there seems to be a gap someplace. Yes, I, I believe that the educators and the principals are doing their best to implement the policies and procedures. Um, part of our review, too, is then to review, as you see in the panel, will be um, to review our policies and procedures. So, so we align our procedures based on the provincial safe schools legislation. Absolutely, I, be, I believe they are. But um, this is a complex issue, and, and I've been speaking about this in the past before. When I look at the complex issue of, of bullying and potentially violence in our community, um, what, where we don't move forward is when we start blaming parents or we start blaming the students. If the students would only do this, if the parents would only do this, if the, if the school board would only do this, we need to come together and to, to look at this. And, if I, and my call out is if there's one parent engagement approach we need is really to get our, our parents on board because it, it is a complex issue of bullying, especially in today's world, uh, we talked about this before, Bill, in the physical world, but also in the digital world. A lot of what surfaces in the schools comes out from the community and filters back and forth, and the digital world is becoming more complex, especially around around the impact of bullying. What role can the board play in that? I mean, you, you can't be a policeman all the time. No, but I think the board has an opportunity. As a, uh, We have students, you know, five to six hours a day, and our board of trustees want to take a leadership role. Um, we've had partners who have reached out and said, you know, from public health to, to our city, to the Hamilton Community Foundation, to um, the Hamilton Jewish Federation, to Liberty for Youth, multiple partners who say we want to give input to this panel, uh, but we also want to be part of the solution because we know we can't, we, the school board can't do it alone, um, but we have to take a leadership role in, in finding a, a community solution. Is everybody buying into this? Uh, I can say, if there's a gap here, if there's a disconnect between what the policy states and what's actually being done, uh, there's, there's somebody here that's, that's not pulling their weight or somebody here that's, that's only going through the motions, which is somewhat troubling. Well, 
let me let me begin by this. You know, I had a conversation with the Minister of Education, St- Stephen Lecce, after the tragic event. Um, he knew we were moving forward with the panel uh, around the broader issue of bullying. And he has said, if there's any way we can help, and whatever you learn here that could help impact or influence the safe schools approach in the ministry, we're, we're willing to help. Um, it, it is frustrating. So when I hear the voices of those two educators, I completely understand um, how they may, may be feeling at times. Um, and, you know, our board has tried to put more resources in place, um, but we've, we've said that, uh, you know, in terms of providing support for our students, there's, there's never enough resources for us, but we, we, we can't do this alone. So I think that everyone's doing the best they can. We have great educators, great principals trying to pull um, their weight, but this is a complex issue that we can't do it in isolation. Where are we going here, Manny? I mean, we, we've seen some of the, 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 I guess, the degradation that can happen in some inner-city schools and other parts. And I'm thinking, obviously, of some of the schools we've seen in the United States. And uh, they're at the point where they, they hire security guards. They've got metal detectors in the doors. Uh, I, 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 we're not heading that way. I mean, some parents are asking me these very same questions, and I said, I don't think so. But then you see some of the, the reporting that we, you and I have been talking about here today, and, and you wonder, is, 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 is that where we're heading? Is that that same sort of thing where we've got to bring in outside uh, forces to try to patrol this? Because it doesn't seem, from these numbers anyway, and from some of the anecdotal evidence, that the staffing and, and policies that you've got are enough to actually make a difference here. Yeah, I hope not as well, Bill. What I would say to you, we're, you know, we're also going to work with some of the key researchers around this. Early intervention is key. Um, we have students who have experienced trauma for various reasons. Um, you know, whether um, they've, they're refugees, whether students who are feeling isolated, whether there's complexity in broken homes and families. But we have to intervene earlier to understand what the root cause of, 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 of some of the trauma students are experiencing. We provide you know, social work support. We've added behavior um, consultants in schools and recently child youth workers, around 25 of them trying to work in schools. But we've said we can't do this alone. There'll never be enough budget for the school board to say we're going to hire as many people as we need. But um, I hope not to the answer your question. That we need preventative measures that really deal with the root cause of why students are experiencing some of this trauma and what, and what supports we have to put in place. It's co- this is complex, but early intervention is going to be key here. Well, and and that's I, I'm on side with that, and and I you know I don't want to see this other situation, and and we have seen it manifest itself in other places, and uh, you know I, I don't want to stand and deliver thing that Morgan Freeman movie from a few years ago where where there's always almost a paramilitary attitude and, and environment in the schools, uh, but as long as our kids don't feel safe, and as long as our teachers don't feel safe. Uh, there's going to be trouble, a, a great deal of trouble, I think, Manny, with learning. And, uh, you know, we, we can look at a number of things here, like we've talked about test scores and everything in the past, and maybe that's, a, and we've done that in isolation, but this is all part of that picture as well. Oh, I, Bill, you're absolutely, when we talk about our priorities, the, the culture and well-being of students is a direct correlation. It's probably the greatest leading indicator of student uh, achievement. I mean, that's why you see so many of our partners, like the number of nutrition programs we have in schools. We know that one of the things that impacts students' learning, is, and they, you know, if they're not if they're not nourished, if they're hungry, um, that itself has an impact on their well-being and how they might um, externalize behaviors. So, um, I agree with you. This is a lead indicator, and and I'm glad the you know the ministry has said that they are willing to support and help and, and learn from our 
uh, review, and uh, we're going to bring a, a report to the board on Monday, and there'll be a panel, and we're going to this, and we're going to engage in about a six, seven month process to really bring key people to the to the table and bring recommendations, not just for here, but for the province. I just what's what's the, the makeup of this going to be, and 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 just what's the agenda going to be? Is it just let's throw everything on the table? Uh, you know, don't hold back on anything. I mean, because I I don't, I don't want somebody sitting around the table that says I don't want to really bring this up because it's going to make the board look bad, or or you know, it's going to make the reporting system look bad. I mean, the the people involved in this, man, you're going to have to be very candid if we're going to get any resolution here. Absolutely, and, it, and we're going to have a, a panel, and the, and the job of the panel is is to actually coordinate, facilitate, and gather the input. It'll be a six, seven-month process, and we want people to bring to be candid, but we also ho- hope that when we have our partners come to the table to say, okay, how do we coordinate what these solutions are? So we can identify the issues, and if we get stuck on the problems instead of and blame, we got to then start to pivot and say, okay, what are potential solutions that exist maybe in our community uh, or solutions we're proposing based on some research that we can pass to the ministry who's willing to support but we want people to be candid, and we really we want to listen. And and that's a, a lot of a long term goal. Six seven months out from now is is actually going to take some time. But what about the short term? I mean, I'm hearing from some parents, and again, it's in light of the tragedy at Churchill, uh, that they suggest that there's a weapons problem in Hamilton High Schools that's not really being dealt with properly. Obviously, there's the violent aspect of this. There's the gang element in some high schools as well. How do you address those on a short term basis? Because I know some parents that that contact me, and I'm sure they contact you as well. That, that are afraid to send their kids to school because they're concerned about what might happen at any particular day. Well, you've heard, Bill, you've heard uh, the police also speak about this. So from a school board perspective, if any student is in, in possession uh, of a weapon or, or uttering a threat with a weapon, that has to be reported to, to the principal and it has to be reported to the police. And there's good, there has to be zero tolerance for that. In, in terms of um, when we talk about uh, the broader issue of any kind of bullying and violence, We've, uh, we've asked people, we have to re- report. And I know sometimes students feel hesitant to report or they're worried about re- uh, repercussions of reporting, but we can't respond if it hasn't been uh, reported. And, and, and um, so especially when it comes to weapons, there's just absolutely zero tolerance for that. And uh, we work with our police closely on that, and we, continue, we will continue to do so. Is that done anonymously? Uh, I, I understand that the policy here is basically if you see something, say something. But you know as well as I do that many times students are afraid of repercussions. Yeah, there's, yeah there is an anonymous way to report it. Students and a lot of our you know, tip-offs come from students anonymously reporting that they, they have heard something, they've seen it, on, they've seen it on, you know, on social media, or they've seen they're aware of people talking about it, and their name is not disclosed. So... Uh, there's ways for students to do it anonymously, and we've seen a, uh, a large number of students who step up and do, and do so anonymously, absolutely. Manny, uh, this is a very complex problem, and, and obviously we're not going to address all of the issues uh, and all of the aspects of it in a short segment that we have here today, uh, but you are going to take some action at the board meeting. Uh, I'd like to do a follow-up with you in the next week or two, and maybe we can have a sit-down and talk about exactly what the, this, this new panel is going to be doing going forward. But I do appreciate the time today. Thank you, Bill, and I'd be open to doing that, absolutely. Okay, we'll do that. Thanks again, Manny. Manny Figueroa is the uh, Director of Education for the Hamilton Board of Education. Uh, And we're not going to let up on the story either. I mean, I'm I'm hearing so many stories now from parents that are very, very concerned. Yes, about cyberbullying. Yes, about physical violence in the classroom. And even physical violence near the schools that spills out into, well, neighboring areas too, as it did just a couple of weeks ago in the East End. Uh, We'll stay on top of that, you can be sure. (laughs) 
You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're going to continue on an education theme and, and a very uh, concerning uh, negotiation that's going on right now. Uh, the Ontario Education Minister uh, has announced yesterday, anyway, that the government has softened its stand, they said, on uh, class sizes that were announced uh, just a few months ago. Uh, which obviously is related to the uh, negotiations that are ongoing right now that talks about a new contract uh, trying to head off labor disruptions. Joining us to talk about this is Harvey Bishop, who is the president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation. Uh, Harvey, thank you for the time. Good to have you with us today. Good morning. Listen, before we get into that, if you don't mind, just before you joined us, uh, I was talking to Manny Figueredo, who is, the, uh, of course, the Director of Education here at the Hamilton Board of Education, about a CBC report about violence in the classroom. And now, this is not a Hamilton-only problem. I know it's actually province-wide. Uh, and the, the essence of the report, I'm sure you've seen at least an overview of this, if not, if not the whole report, is that uh, teachers are concerned because they think a lot of this stuff is being underreported right now, and they're concerned that, uh, that boards are not getting the resources to be able to deal with the increasing violence that's going on. What are you hearing from your membership on that? Well, exactly that. Uh, and it's true, I have not had a chance to look at that report in detail yet, although, uh, as you say, I have an overview. Um, but my members have been saying for years that, um, that there are escalating level, levels of violence related to insufficient supports in schools, um, and that, that violence plays out between students and, of course, uh, between students and, and against some of my members as well, uh, members who um, suffer uh, injuries on a regular basis and sometimes to a grievous extent. Well, and this is one of the anecdotal stories that I've heard, because I know that when I, I'm looking at some of the material from the ministry, and they say, well, you know, teachers take too many days off. Uh, some of the teachers have responded to me uh, when Mr. Lecce said that on the show a little while ago and say, look, a lot of these are injuries that, that we sustain from students in the classroom. I mean, and you know, it, don't blame us for that. I mean, we're trying to be, you know, the, the, the peacekeepers and try to allay some of these concerns, and they're the ones that end up getting injured in, in many cases. And then there are, of course, the psychological aspects of this. This is a much bigger problem than the board, and, and frankly, I guess the ministry seems to want to admit I, I absolutely believe it is, and, and it, you know, my members, both uh, teachers and support staff, and in many cases support staff work uh, up, you know, the closest with some of the highest need students um, and are, are subject to, uh, to incidents of violence. Um, and uh, what we haven't seen, you know, we, we, saw, we saw a previous government bring in laws that required reporting, uh, and we're seeing that reporting not being completed in the way it should be. So the problem has been hidden and, and absolutely insufficiently addressed. It, is the disconnect at the administrative level? It, it seems to be, um, for various reasons. Um, you know, my members have been discouraged from reporting. They've had the reports uh, made inaccessible to them. They've been told that, you know, that punch in the head that they just received wasn't, in fact, a violent incident. Um, and, you know, whether or not the student is culpable, and in some cases you have kids who, you know, it's not, uh, it's, it's not a malicious act. It's, it's lack of self-control or, or, you know, something along those lines. Um, but, when when you're punched in the head, it's a violent act, regardless of the intent behind it. Yeah, yeah. If you're the one that getting you're getting hit, I mean, you want to be able to do something about. It. We, and I find that in Congress, really, that if there is a disconnect to be on a certain side, in other words, they they underreport this stuff because they're afraid of the the bad reputation. The only way you're going to get better resources and and more help with this is if you understand and and show the ministry the magnitude of the concern and the problem. Well, this is exactly right. Sweeping it under the carpet leads to just a further escalation of the problem. And we've had a very difficult time reaching out to... Uh, I've been trying for, for weeks and weeks now to get a meeting with the Minister of Labour. Um, and, and we haven't been able to schedule a meeting because that's where 
workplace safety should be addressed is with the minister. Um, I reached out to the Ontario Public School Boards Association and said, work with us um, and and we will work with you and there will be no, you know, sort of public shaming of of them and uh, OPSBA refused to work with us. I will give credit to the Upper Grand District School Board. Um, their leadership said, absolutely, we'll work with you. We'll, we'll get together. We'll, we'll uh, put in a detailed effort uh, to try to see if we can sort some of these problems out. They deserve a lot of credit. Um, others have uh, preferred to stonewall. Well, and I'm glad you you were able to comment on this today because I just wanted our listeners to understand that when we hear about negotiations that are going on with the ministry and and, and the federation, uh, it's not just about money. It's not just about class size. There's there's a whole lot on the table right now, and certainly that's got to be part of the discussion too. Uh, well, but- we insist that the number of of caring professionals in schools is directly related to uh, how safe uh, not just our staff but students are and how well they can be attended to, and that's certainly part of the bargaining. Well, let's talk about class size then. Uh, a lot of people saw this, the headline yesterday. Uh, Ontario Minister softens high school class size uh, hike in negotiations with teachers union. Uh, some are suggesting that he's giving you exactly what you want. Uh, you have a different perspective on that. Well, let's be clear that that... Uh, by the minister's own description, uh, the average class size in Ontario uh, schools right now is 22.5, and he wants to raise that to 25. The fact that he previously said, you know, or the ministry said they wanted to raise it to 28 is is a little bit immaterial. Um, they're still talking about an increase from where we're at right now, and where we're at right now has led to classes of over 40 students, it's led to kids not getting access to the courses they need to graduate. In the Hamilton area, it's led to what we referred to as quad-stacked classes, four grades in one room. Um, and so the minister is still proposing um, that, we, that we make the situation worse than that. Um, so, I, you know, I'll concede he's, he's moved from uh, talking about getting rid of 10,000 teaching positions to getting rid of 5,000 teaching positions um, that doesn't seem like a huge step forward to us. There's an area of contention that I think a lot of people don't seem to understand, Harry. You, uh, Harvey, rather, you just talked about this a second ago. Uh, when they say, uh, like, for instance, 25 class, well, what's the big deal about 25 students in the classroom? That's an average. Maybe you could explain to our listeners how some students, as you say, are, are, are some classrooms, rather, are now upwards of 40 students, not the 25 that they're talking about. That's exactly right. It, that is a it is a funded average. It's it's the the formula they use to to hire teaching staff to get funding from the ministry in order to hire teaching staff. But those averages, when you consider that some classes have to be kept small in order to address the needs of, let's say, special needs students, or because you're in a technology class that has uh, equipment that presents a you know a safety concern, or or uh, just you know there are, there are, isn't sufficient uh, equipment to have more numbers in there. As soon as you hold some classes smaller, other you know, it's squeezing the balloon. Another part is going to bulge out, and so we've ended up with uh, with classes that are that are forty and more in various places around the province. So, people hear that average number; it doesn't sound too bad, but the the actual on the ground outcome is massively overcrowded classrooms. And let's look at what the minister didn't talk about yesterday when he proposed um, this average class size of of twenty five. At the same time, they gave us a proposal at the table that would completely eliminate the class size caps, the maximum uh, caps on classes that we have in collective agreements all across the province. 
So there would no longer be any guide rails on the decision-making for how many students could be jammed into a class. Um, I think the only limit would be, you know, how many bodies can you stuff into this particular room? Um, that was the proposal that uh, that he refused to speak to at his press conference yesterday. But isn't he hearing the same data that you you are receiving from teachers uh, in the classroom? I mean, I, I talked to some here in the Hamilton area that they, they said they've got students who are standing in the class because there aren't enough desks for them, uh, which tells me there's more than 25 students there. And as, as you say, if there's one because a special needs class with 15, well, to use their own numbers, that means they can stick 10 more into another classroom someplace else and still maintain those averages. So they're still within the the parameters, but is that really the best way to learn? Is that the best environment? Yeah, I mean, not only can stick 10 more, but must stick 10 more if they're going to find a class for those kids. Yeah. Look, I, I absolutely believe that the minister is hearing the same data, and I bet that he personally uh, even would like to do something better. But let's face it, he's a messenger for the Ford, uh, you know, for, for the premier. Uh, as a messenger for Doug Ford, um, he's boxed in by um, a, a narrow uh, fiscal approach to uh, education bargaining. He's not, I don't think, permitted to look at what's really good for students. All they're looking at is a kind of bottom line, which even at that is short-sighted because education is an investment. It's not a mere cost. And if you want um, to you know, continue to graduate high-quality students into Ontario's economy and that economy to thrive, um, you need to put upfront investment into it. Is is it true? And I just want our listeners to understand the the, the severity of this. That you actually have multi grades in some classrooms. In in right right in the Hamilton went district school board. I've had reports of as, as we refer to a quad stacked class, four grades in one class. This is like the, so, that's so, like the little schoolhouse from you know bygone days. You know, grade one is this row, grade two is this row. That's happening in high in some high schools anyway. Absolutely. So isn't this ironic that while we hear the government and, and Premier Ford talking about modernizing the education system and the, you know, the minister gets to carry that message for the, for the premier as well, they're talking about modernizing and we've got schools that are you know, more closely approximating Little House on the Prairie. Just, it's incredible. Just ridiculous. Incredulous, I guess, is maybe, maybe the better word here. One of the other areas that uh, that I'm hearing a lot from parents about, and you and I have talked about this in the past, and I'm just wondering what kind of uh, 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 feedback you're getting from the ministry on this, as you sit across the table, uh, and that's the online learning courses, which are going to be mandatory. Uh, a number of parents have, have expressed some serious concern that their kids may just not be up to it, and they're not sure about the support services that are going to be available to them. And this this idea that the ministry uh, floated of four mandatory e-learning courses for every student is an absolutely untried experiment anywhere in any jurisdiction we can find in the world. It treats students as guinea pigs, um, and what we've proposed is we step back, we put together a work group. I, look, I've got members who every day deliver great online uh, e-learning courses. Um, let's all step back, let's gather together, let's look at the opportunities and the potential pitfalls before we conduct an experiment on our students. But we know that, um, you know, right now 5% of students voluntarily take e-learning courses. They want to ramp it up 20-fold to 100% of students uh, taking mandatory uh, credits. Not all students are equipped, um, uh, you know, personally to take on that kind of independent learning. Um, not all areas in the province are equipped to provide the, uh, the Internet that's required for this. Not all students have the, the, you know, the financial means to access the, the equipment that's needed for this. So it's, 
it, it's a proposal that would just conduct an experiment on kids, and that's not the right way to go. Why can't we step back and be reasonable? But that said, the uh, the ministry has not responded to our proposal at all on e-learning, and that's disappointing and concerning, too. Harvey, are we moving back towards this one-size-fits-all for students? Well, that, that kind of seems to be it. Um, and when, you know, when we've had a, a, an approach more like that in the past, we also had, you know, you go back 15, 16 years ago, you had graduation rates that were 20% lower than they are right now. Over the last decade and a half, we've raised graduation rates by 20%. One out of five more students now uh, in a position to go on to post-secondary education, in a position to start an apprenticeship in a, in a skilled trade, you know, was something we have a, a real need for in this province is more skilled tradespeople. Um, so we've made significant advances, and if we want to go back to those days where we only graduated, you know, 60% of our students uh, keep going down the road the government's proposing. I, I, because I, mean, I think we're smarter than that, at least I thought we were at one point, and we do have different uh, levels of education and different intensities, I guess, for different. I mean, with, there's an independent high school here, Westmount, that's been very successful for a, a certain kind of student. Uh, the, the baccalaureate program, great for those students, but it's not for everybody. Uh, it, it seems as if we're moving back to the situation like, okay, if you guys can survive that, good for you. The rest of you that can't, well, you're on your own. And that's, that's not really, I think, the kind of education system that anybody wants in this province. Well, this is, and, and exactly what we have done over that last decade and a half is provide opportunities for a wide range of kids. So we've shrunk the achievement gap significantly in Ontario. It's something we're really proud of, we, so that, so that um, new Canadians are achieving uh, much higher and much closer to the rates of, of uh, you know, long-established uh, folks who live here, so that kids who come from the lower end of the social economic spectrum, um, we've shrunk the gap to, to kids who, you know, who fall higher up. Um, that kind of equity that we've provided, equity to, to uh, fulfilling futures, is something that uh, I know my members, support staff and teachers, are extremely proud of. Um, and we don't want to go backwards there and freeze kids out of being contributing members of society and, frankly, contributing members of the economy. Harvey, uh, you've uh, put a request in now for a no-board report, uh, which uh, some people think is, is the first step towards uh, a strike action in situations like that. Uh, maybe explain that decision and, and what you anticipate. So it is part of the labor relations process. We're in the process right now of taking strike votes amongst my members around the province. Um, and we asked for a conciliator to be appointed and asked for a, a no-board report. Um, and what that means most importantly is once that no board report is issued and if we have a strike vote in place, then 17 days after the issuance of the report, we would be in a legal strike position. Um, unfortunately, what's happened is the government has demonstrated, as they did in QP bargaining, that they respond only when they're on the brink, that only escalating pressure at the bargaining table seems to bring them to some sort of uh, reasonable position. Um, so, you know, we've been very, very um, moderate uh, all along, and uh, but the government has, has laid out a path for what it is that's required in order for them to start coming to their senses with regard to positions that are good for our students. Um, and so we are, we are going down the, the path that's laid out by the labor relations legislation. Are you confident? About? A resolution. 
It's hard to be confident right now with a government that's still talking about uh, eliminating 5,000 teaching positions, uh, hundreds uh, and thousands of of support staff positions um, that hasn't seen uh, their way clear to providing any counter-proposal on e-learning. It's hard, but we're not giving up. We're at the table. We'll stay at the table. We'll continue to put forward those proposals. We'll put forward creative solutions because that's what we always do in bargaining. Um, and we will hope that we are met with the same kind of, uh, you know, reason and creativity on the other side. Harvey Bischoff, uh, president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation. Harvey, we'll stay in touch on this and uh, we'll uh, see how this develops over the next couple of weeks. Thanks for this today. Thanks, Bill. I appreciate the time. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. On the other side of the pond, we've had a a couple of different uh, machinations of what could happen with Brexit this week. Uh, Boris Johnson's not getting a whole lot of uh, support right now from the the UK Parliament about what he'd like to do, which, of course, is a a no-deal Brexit. Uh, Well, time's running out. They've got to October 31st. They have asked for a deadline uh, for another three months. But that's only one factor in this. While this is going on and while they're doing their dance in, in Parliament, what about the, the businesses? What about the economy? It's, uh, it's not doing well over there for a whole lot of reasons. Uh, trying to delve into this and find out exactly what the implications might be, not just for the UK, but on a global basis. I want to bring Marvin Ryder, business professor from the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University, into the conversation. Morning, Marvin. How are you doing today? I am fine, thank you, Bill. One thing that you have uh, told me consistently over the years that you and I have known each other is markets like consistency. They like stability. Uh, They're not getting it over there. No, not at all. So let's just take you back a half a step to remind remind everybody where we are right at this moment. Uh, Last week, Boris Johnson, uh, in some tough negotiations with the European Union, got what he claimed to be a slightly better a negotiated exit deal, which he brought back to the British Parliament, and they he wanted them to approve it last Saturday. That was a key deadline inside Britain, because it had to be approved by last Saturday. Um, instead, they debated it for a while, and they said, yeah, we don't think it's all that much better than what was there before, so we're going to vote to ask for an extension. <laughs> that isn't what he wanted them to do, but he can't control Parliament. No prime minister can and instead they voted to ask for an extension. And even though he didn't want to ask, he was ordered to ask, and so an extension request has been filed with the European Union. But he, even, he was even a little belligerent with that, isn't he? He didn't sign the letter. He, he was. He didn't sign the letter. That's correct. He, he, he actually even sent a second letter saying, I don't believe in what my <laughs> parliament is telling me to do, but I have to ask. So I, I think they're going to get the extension because the European Union doesn't want a no-deal Brexit. That's considered the nightmare scenario scenario that just everything gets tossed up in the air and then we'll sort it out down the road. So I think they get the extension. The extension request is to January 31st. It's not been granted yet, but we expect to hear about that either later today or perhaps on the weekend. So in the meantime, then on Monday, Tuesday, Boris brought his plan back and said, okay, you didn't want a fast track approval, but can we at least debate this? And again, the parliament said, no, no, we don't really want to debate this. We don't think this is much of an improvement over what was there before. And, and part of this is all due to the Northern Ireland question. As luck would have it, Bill, last week I visited Ireland, and I even did a day trip up into Northern Ireland, and their big fear is this border between the North and the South, the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. Right now I could drive across that border. I didn't need to stop, didn't need to show a passport. 
people move back and forth like it's anything. And what they're really worried about is suddenly a border goes up, suddenly tariff barriers go up, and this lovely porous border just disappears. And so unless there's anything... Um, or excuse me, try it this way. Anything short of that is going to be uh, disapproved by the Northern Irish, and then because of that, they get sympathy from the Scottish, and they get sympathy from the Welsh, Welsh and that's what's going on there. So what Boris announced this week was, if, if I do get an extension until January 31st, I think the only way to resolve this is, wait for the drum roll, a general election which he would likely call for the end of November or early December, because we are just in an impasse. Remember that his party, the, the Tory party in the uh, UK, has lost its majority. It can't swing anything. It can't force anything. So he feels they're in such a stalemate situation, he might call a snap election. So that's what's going on, and that's one of the things that makes the markets antsy about all of this, is we, we don't know if we're leaving, when we're leaving, how we're leaving, and we may even have a change of government in the meantime. Uh, and, and you can imagine then the markets get quite scared. Is, is there anybody over there that would reverse this? Uh, I, I mean, let's face it, if, if there's going to be a general election, it's either going to be Boris Johnson or Jeremy Corbyn as the prime minister. And I, I get the sense, and I don't know what you heard when you were over there uh, a couple, few days ago, Marvin, uh, I don't think anybody's warm uh, to the idea of Jeremy Corbyn being the prime minister over there. So, you know, it, it seems inevitable that Boris is going to be back again, but I guess it's going to depend to a certain extent on the attitude in Parliament. Well, uh, I, I'll say yes. Now, the interesting question about election, and we just had an election here in Canada, is is kind of this question of what is the lesser of two evils. Mm -hmm. Generally speaking, people don't tend to vote for something in an election. They vote against something in the election. So even if they don't love Jeremy Corbyn, if, for instance, Mr. Corbyn staked his future on a, I'm going to rip up Brexit idea, and I'm going to stay part of the European Union, and I'm going to negotiate within that, he could actually ride that to a victory. Uh, just last weekend, at the same time that Parliament was debating this, nearly a million people, nearly a million people swarmed downtown London saying they don't want to go. They want another referendum. Uh, Mr. Johnson isn't going to have another referendum, but in essence, this election could become a referendum on leaving the European Union. And in that sense, whoever embraces that could ride it to victory, even if they are personally unpopular, because what they're advocating is popular. It, it gets a little complicated, Bill, but you know what I'm getting at here. People don't vote for something. They vote against it, and suddenly the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Now, I'm trying to remember parliamentary procedure here, and if, if I do recall... Uh, a simple up and down vote on if there's a new parliament elected, a simple up and down vote on this policy would either you know uh, validate it or or kick it out there. It's not like they have two thirds majority or anything like they have with some rules with an existing parliament. Well, so again, you're right. If if it is with the current sitting parliament, because there had been other votes, you might have to have a vote of reconsideration, yeah. which would require that two-thirds. But if you have a newly elected parliament, which has never debated this before, it's a new sitting of the House, what have you, then you're absolutely right. It's 50% plus one could get their way, and 50% plus one could say... We're staying with the European Union, end those negotiations, and, and let's go in another direction. Now, in the meantime, the other thing about the business community that I think we should mention is you don't wait. If I'm a business person, I don't wait until the last possible moment to react to something. Right now, the way the winds are blowing, Britain, one way or another, seems to be wanting to leave the European Union. Well, there are many companies that have set up shop in England, 
as, uh, say, take an American company who wanted to do business in Europe, said, well, I've got to have a European headquarters somewhere. Oh, London would be a great place to do that because they speak the same language. Culturally, we are fairly similar. And then I can use that as the base of my European Union operations. Well, clearly, if London and, excuse me, England is leaving the European Union, that's not going to work anymore. So there's all kinds of companies trying to figure out what their future would be in a post-Brexit scenario. That means companies have stopped making investments. If I'm a car company that does assembly, let's say, somewhere in England or in Northern Ireland or Scotland, I'm probably not investing in the plant the way I used to invest. But instead, I may be investing in a new facility in Germany or in France or in Spain, because I think if Britain leaves, that may become my base of operations. Or if I'm a British company who has really enjoyed having access to the European Union over the last 20 years, and there's some possibility that after a Brexit there will be tariffs and all kinds of evil things applied to my products, I'm exploring uh, about having a branch plant or a second plant or a third plant somewhere in the European Union. So investment dollars are not being made into Britain. They are being made elsewhere in the European Union to give them a, we'll call it a plan B scenario, just in case Brexit really happens. And, and so what does that mean for the British economy? Well, it's slowing. It's not in a recession at this point, Bill. But it's not growing anywhere near as fast as people would hope. And, of course, then when the economy doesn't grow, that means there's not a lot of new jobs, and you get another whole series of problems spinning that way. We saw this happen in Canada. I'm old enough to remember it anyway in the late 1970s uh, when René Levesque was the premier in, in Quebec. Uh, and, and they were going to have a referendum about separation. And an awful lot of corporate, it uh, wasn't so much, uh, I guess, factories and such, but a lot of corporate people who had offices in Montreal all of a sudden figured, you know, Toronto's looking pretty good right now. And, and they left. Uh, and because obviously they they don't want to get caught in a situation like that and and get caught in the in the political machinations. So um, and this is this has got to be really problematic, I think, for the for the UK economy if they're going to start looking and saying, look, at, I know I was going to put two million dollars into my factory in Liverpool, but you know what? I think I'm going over to France now to do this. Uh, yes. Once you, once they do that, that the money's not coming back. Right, and and you see again. What will a company do? In the face of uncertainty, we assume the worst-case scenario. What is the worst-case scenario? There is no longer free trade of goods between Britain and the rest of the European Union. Tariffs go on. Barriers go on. Can't move people around the way I used to be able to move. And so I'm assuming the worst case. That's why I'm looking at reestablishing my base of operations elsewhere in Europe. Now, a negotiated Brexit, not a no-deal Brexit, but a negotiated Brexit that might say, oh, okay, Britain, you leave the European Union, but I'll tell you what, for 10 years, there will be no tariffs applied against you, or for 10 years, people will still be able to move around the way they have. Once you know the terms of the deal, you might say, oh, oh, I can live with that. That doesn't really change the game all that much, and I could start reinvesting. But remember, Bill, this sword, if you will, has been hanging over the heads of the business community for three years. That was supposed to be until, I think it was January 31st of this year, or March 31st of this year. Then we have an extension until October 31st. Now we're going to extend to January 31st. Given that history, you wouldn't be crazy for thinking there might be yet another extension in the future. And how long am I going to wait for certainty? So since I have had uncertainty for this long, I, I feel I've got to take an action and I've got to assume the worst, especially given the way this whole thing is mired in Parliament. And that's not good news at all for Britain. Here's a statistic that I, I found very troubling, too. The, uh, the British Chamber of Commerce actually has done a survey among their small business members 
Uh, and they said, are you ready? Are, are you preparing for Brexit? And 63% said no, because we don't know the terms. How can we prepare for something when we don't know what, what, what the parameters are going to be? That's absolutely right. Uh, if I said to you, so uh, give you another quick example here. For a long time, as we debated here in Hamilton about LRT, a lot of businesses that said, well, I, I could be on the route, but I might not be on the route. I don't know what to do until someone tells me what street is it actually going to go down. And then once I know, I can take action. Well, it's the same thing here. Think of a Brexit like a big LRT, except I don't know where it's going to run and where it's not going to run and how long it's going to take and what it's all involving, and yet you want me to prepare for it. How do I prepare for the absolute unknown? So again, in that situation, bigger businesses, well, they'll say, I'm just going to forget about the whole thing and go to Europe. A small business just has to try to hang on and ride this out, uh, as you might say, through a bad storm. And, and in the meantime, of course, it gives them uncertainty. So they aren't hiring anymore. They aren't spending any more than they absolutely have to. And that begins to slow your economy at the same time. So whether Britain meant to do this or not, this whole uh, Brexit debate over the last three and a half years is really damaging the economy, and they're not getting anywhere near the kind of growth that they normally would. I mean, how do you prepare for a storm if you don't know what kind of storm it's going to be? You know, it's, well, what, 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 is it going to flood? Is, is it a windstorm? Is it going to rain? What's going to happen? They don't know. Yeah. Is it coming from the east? Is it coming from the west? Is it lasting one day or five days? If you don't know, you can, you can be cautious, but other than being cautious, you don't know what to do. I, I, I'm going to connect a couple of dots here because I want to get your read on this. From an economic standpoint, I, yep. I'm try to, not getting too deep into the weeds on the politics of this. But when you get a place like Alberta that says, you know, we're so ticked off in Canada right now, we're going to th- we're, 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 we want to we want to leave. You know, they've got their own Wexit thing that's going on out there. Uh, are they not looking at what's happening with the UK here? And and this is that that's only an economic deal. It's it's not the whole you know ball of wax where it's going to be politics and everything else. Leaving is not is not easy, no matter how you do it, because there are huge economic implications that I don't think a whole lot of people take into consideration when they start talking like that. Which was also true in the Quebec debate. Yeah, exactly. You know, one, of the, one of the things that happened in the referendum, it's all well and good to say, I want to leave, but what does that mean? And so many people in Quebec once thought, well, I'm going to leave and take all these nice assets with me. And the government of the day said, well, no, no, you can't just leave with the assets. You've got to take a chunk of the debt that we have spent on your behalf as well. What? Oh, no, no, I don't want the debt. You keep the debt. I want all the good stuff. We even had that here in Hamilton, Bill. Forgive me for bringing up the amalgamation back in 2000. Oh, yeah. One of the big questions about Flamborough's future. Yeah. The city of Hamilton had invested significantly in infrastructure for the water-down area, bringing water, sewage, other things, brand-new infrastructure. Oh, good, we'll take that, thank you, and we're going to go to Burlington. Well, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. No, no, you don't get that. It has a 25-year life. You owe us something for that. I don't want that. So it's easy to say that. Uh, certainly in the case here in, in Canada, I think the election had very little to do with Alberta and Saskatchewan versus the rest of the country. It really has a lot more to do with an urban-rural divide. If you look at the map of Canada from a distance, it's very blue, uh, except that's all in the rural areas where only about 15% of the people live. Today, 80 to 85% of us live in the urban areas, and the urban areas are these little seas of orange and red across the countryside. It, it has much more to do with that than it has to do with specific geography going on. <coughs> I should add one more quick thing from my trip up to uh, Northern Ireland. 
you know, in 1999, there was a big peace treaty signed, and, and there was peace finally from all those troubles they had between the, the Catholic and Protestant areas. On my trip, I specifically went to a Protestant area of Belfast and a Catholic area of Belfast, and I can tell you the social tensions are running very, very high at this point. There is a great fear that Brexit might cause some of those troubles to reignite, uh, in particular, those people who, who who were sort of against British rule, and many of those were from the Catholic community, uh, they're concerned that if these barriers go up and we don't have the free movement of people, they're going to say, that, look, at this is Britain screwing around with us again, hurting us again, and they might leverage that. I, I can tell you I talk to people on the street who are very, very concerned that how this Brexit plays out could restart those troubles in Northern Ireland, and nobody, at least of a certain age, wants that to happen again. I asked them, would this lead to Northern Ireland either independence or with Northern Ireland joining with Southern Ireland? And they said, well, really today there's no need as a Northern Irish citizen. I can get a passport in Ireland. I, I can have an affinity. It's really about simply the movement of people that's causing the problem. They wouldn't vote to leave, but, but they said, we've got to have that free movement of people. I hope, I really do hope that Boris Johnson is reading those tea leaves correctly, because not only might we have economic issues, but we could have some severe social issues as well as Brexit comes to an end. Yeah, well, I've heard those same stories about Ireland, and we haven't even talked about the implication it may have on Scotland, uh, where Prime Minister Sturgeon says yeah. if they do this, yeah, maybe we're out of the UK too. Anyway, we're out of time. Uh, we'll pick this up, obviously, because I know there's going to be developments over the weekend, as there always have been. Marvin, thanks as always. Good talking to you today. My pleasure, Bill. Well, uh, Marvin Ryder, of course, from the DeGroote School of Business. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.